Namaskar. Satyameva Jayate, Truth Alone Triumphs. These words inscribed in the Devanagari script at the base of the lion capital of Ashok form an integral part of the Indian national emblem and is the national motto of India. But just by asking, making it our national motto or including it in the national emblem, are we truly emulating what the seers of ancient India tried to say using these words? Are we really living a life and in society where truth can triumph or for that matter, even see the light of day? Ours is an age when we have buzzwords ranging from WhatsApp university to post-truth politics to reflect the place that deception and lies have in the way in which we conduct politics in today's world. Not to sound too cynical, dogma and ideological stagnation have become widespread in modern life, society and politics. We must move beyond the inadequacies of modern constructs and ideologies, most of which follow a one-suit-fits-all model. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court is a popular story of a common American called Hank, who is carried back in time to Britain in the Dark Ages. When he tries to impose his modern values and systems in that age, there is a massive upheaval and civil war breaks out. Why, you may ask, did the progressive modern ideas of contemporary society create so much chaos instead of helping in development as expected? Because these ideas were incongruous with the existing realities of life then. Because these ways of thinking were not in harmony with the manner of thinking, behaving and being which was prevalent. You may say that these realizations are simply based on fantasy and fiction, just like Connecticut Yankee and King's Arthur quote. Not quite. There are times when well-intentioned policies fail miserably due to not accounting for special and specific conditions that may exist in many parts of the world. For example, Chile and Mongolia have looked at the same institutional forms for the allocation of revenues from the industry that extracts natural resources. In fact, Mongolia followed the Chilean example. But the two countries have had very different outcomes. Fiscal spending in Mongolia is considerably more pro-cyclical in spite of having the same rules while Chile is a success story. This is because of very different conditions within these countries. Political constraints, pressure from interest groups, existing social opinions about the need to accelerate progress in specific areas and historical inertia have affected Mongolia in ways that Chile has not been affected. In today's world, going beyond policies, even at the level of ideas, we see a number of binaries. Right or left, what is progressive, what is regressive, what is nationalistic and what is anti-national, even what is data-driven and what is gut-driven. But wait, should we not ask ourselves whether any of these binaries are absolute? Do any of these binaries have a universal meaning? Or for that matter, do any of these binaries even mean anything beyond a point? We all have a natural tendency to decipher the mysteries of life, society, and even nature in terms of ideas of what we see, hear, feel, know, sense, and realize. For example, we can learn a new language, but that is always in terms of words in languages we know or things we relate to. We often try to model the universe itself in terms of theories, such as in physics. But as modern physics has shown us, with theories as different as string theory and superfluid vacuum theory, there are a number of ways we can describe our universe and for specific conditions, all of them are equally good in describing what we see around us. Each of these theories and models describe some aspects well and others not so much. For instance, even now, Newton's theory of gravity is able to describe systems where we have slow moving particles in weak, unchanging gravitational fields. 
But what is important to note is that none of the theories or models entirely describe all of reality. There is no theory of everything as we know it, at least not yet, and if Stephen Hawking has to be believed, may never do so. Reality is beyond what can represent it, and this is also true for society and politics. No ideology can be absolute, no philosophy sacrosanct. One or more ideologies or models of how we should govern ourselves can work at any given point in time, given certain specific conditions. I feel that we must embrace this fluidity, this inherent redundancy, and adopt a more calibrative, a more adaptive model of politics and governance. It is not as much about which of the ideologies are correct, but rather our very way of thinking that needs to go beyond the excessive emphasis we lay on these ideologies. As somebody who has been interested in political philosophy, I have previously wondered if it is possible to strike a balance between different ideologies in the political spectrum. But just like light and shade, these ideologies are often exclusive to each other at various points. We can deconstruct any ideology into a coherent sequence of ideas, but these ideologies are like strands of a thread that can come together and move apart on different ideas. A balance between ideologies within such a chaotic mess of ideas is often quite impossible. We see that a lot of the current problems in the world, unfortunately, arise from the triad of materialism, parochial politics, and sometimes perversion of religion as well. All the three can be potentially addressed and resolved by introducing, or may I say reintroducing, the principle of transcendence that was championed by the Indic and Dharmic people since ancient times. No ideology or idea is absolute, no construct or model can explain all of reality or even major parts of it. No theory, political or otherwise, has all the tools to represent what it seeks to represent. But surely, when we must go beyond thinking and actually undertake actions, what do we do? If there is no right way, how can we be karma yogis if all the parts are equally correct and we remain confused as to which one to follow? Well, the simple answer is that we make a choice. A choice that is defined by our swadharma, our innate tendencies and nature, as well as our circumstances and conditions. Ideally, this choice should be made with an active sense of seeking to see the bigger picture, as much of the whole of reality as we can see. To make a choice and yet actively remember that it is one of many possible choices and each one of those choices are not absolute. Each of those choices is dependent on a larger movement of reality around us and nothing more. While there is free will and independence of choice, there is no absoluteness in either of these. History gives us many examples of such occurrences. For example, the invasion of Soviet Russia by Germany is said to be the turning point of World War II. Why Nazi Germany took what many thought to be a suicidal mission has a number of individual and political reasons. Some say it was due to the tussle over Balkan territories, while others highlight Hitler's hubris. Had these not been factors, who knows if Germany would have invaded and thereafter lost the war? Two sides of a coin compose the coin. If I ask you which side is correct or will fall up, you would probably look at me with amusement and ridicule. Similarly, two sides of an ideological binary are equally part of the reality of that binary. The way this ideological coin falls simply depends on how specific conditions and circumstances toss it. What is important to realize is that there is always something beyond what our models and theories and ideologies can describe. There is always something beyond our constructs and ideas of reality. This is the essence of thought that our ancient Indian seers sought to side with, and that is exactly the premise of Turiyavad. 
Three is a number that has been often used and been prevalent in various civilizations, with the most prominent being that of the Trinitarian conception of divinity in Christianity. But what if I were to say that it is actually the fourth that held preeminence for the ancient Indians? In ancient Indic culture, we were introduced to the principle of the underlying truth of the universe, Satya as we know it, in our scriptures from the Vedas to Upanishads and Purans. This Satya is said to include everything in the universe within it. While Vedanta may call it Brahman, the cosmic creative principle, other schools of Hindu thought characterized this fundamental substratum of reality in terms of what it is not. According to the famous Neti Neti idea, the absolute truth in Hindu philosophy cannot be thought of in terms of anything that we can sense or relate to empirically. If we think of it as a form, it is also everything beyond and besides the form. If we think of it as an idea, it is also the negation of that idea. This Satya is said to be that from which everything emerges and goes back to, from the largest of celestial bodies to the smallest of particles. But what we believe or know, how we represent this truth is subjective. What we can truly believe in is what we experience ourselves. Even if the most advanced modern experimental setups were to tell us that a certain process or phenomena happens in a certain way, that would always be with a margin of error. And it is only healthy and even scientific, truly on the path of seeking truth, to not believe, at least blindly. Realizing this makes us naturally give importance to a more experiential way of thinking and being, which is more decentralized, since one's experience is the one thing that we can rely on with the highest certainty. It is in the context of individual consciousness that the seers of ancient India defined a rather interesting concept, a concept that went beyond what the seers regarded as states of wakefulness, dream-filled state, and deep sleep. This was the concept of the fourth, or Turiya. To define the state, let us look at a shloka from the Mandukya Upanishad, verse 7. Nivratehe sarvudaha khana mishanaha prabhuravya advaita sarvabhavanaha devastaryu vibhusmita in this shloka, the absolute truth is said to be changeless and wherein there is a succession of all miseries. It is said to be non-dual, not to, that is without a second, as well as omnipresent, all-pervading and self-effulgent. This is the state that is said to be attained in Samadhi in the yogic system. We can see how this concept of Turiya relates to things we see around us. All objects are often not just the sum of their parts. How much qualitatively more they are than that is of significance. In politics, how much more is needed than what an ideology can offer as a model or solution for a situation or issue is reflective of instantiated Turiya, or the fourth. For example, while the laissez-faire market economy may drive economic growth, the welfare state can ensure equity in that growth. <clears throat> Both are important, and so policy platform one opts for is tough to ascertain without knowing the realities of a time. At one point, more government spending is possible if the economy is strong, while there may be austerity required when there is a lapse or lack in government funds and finances. Much like in Darwinian theory, where the environment self-selects the mutation or option that is best suited for the sustenance and growth of a species, it is the reality of a time and place that must determine the most suited policy platform. Is this fickleness or unprincipled vacillations? Not at all. It is, just that the it, just, it is just the realization that all the ideologies and policy platforms only capture different sections and aspects of the greater reality. The only ideology that matters in this, then, is that of truth, of evidence, of looking at what reality is. 
In doing so, one transcends the over-reliance on dogma and ideology. The evidence-based approach, customized solvability, and solutions for addressing problems has been studied extensively in policy making. For instance, in economics, Professor Abhijit Banerjee and Professor Esther Duflo have formulated a certain experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. The political economy and developmental economics that is context-specific and driven by an almost dogged pursuit of evidence and truth as it stands, is the only way where politics can be about effective decision-making and policy rather than just political theories as an end in themselves. While many of these ideas and elements of ancient India may not be applicable to this age, the principle of transcendence and the element of seeking truth without being constrained by certain conceptions or aspects of the truth remains as relevant and important today as it was in the past. And it is with this understanding that I humbly place a new framework and ideology that is paradoxically about not being reliant on any ideology in only the active pursuit of truth and transcendence for our society and politics, Turiyavad. All that matters is to seek truth oneself and act based on one's own experiences and realizations. The only principles that matter are probably just the universal human principles of compassion and truth. I look forward to reaching out to strengthen the cause of liberation through Mukti, even at an ideological level, and my Indic heritage makes it only natural for me to pursue this with sincerity, humility, and honesty. But in doing so, what is key is a dissolution of ego and hubris. Arrogance can be ridiculous when we realize the essence that underlies nature and life. Even when at a worldly level, one may have attained much, does that attainment determine yourself? If hypothetically, we would take away all your material attainments one fine morning, would you still not be you? And which among these attainments was not rather a movement of a number of beings, let's say your parents, teachers, and co-workers, and circumstances? Fighting COVID and facing lockdowns has shown us the transience of life, of pursuits, of attainments. It has shown us in stark contrast the relational reality that Buddha spoke of, that the essence of reality lies in the correlations and unity of nature not as much on the absoluteness or identity of a specific element, entity, process, or phenomenon. In ancient Indian thought, the concept of ahankar meant the form of the self-sense or aham. The understanding of aham as self in its truest sense is given in the powerful words aham brahmasmi from the Brihadaranya Upanishad. Here the subtlety, however, is around what is the self. It is spoken of as Brahman in Vedantic thought, but what is Brahman? Brahman is said to be the fundamental reality underlying the universe in Sanatan Dharm. It defies any description based on relational and relative constructs and ideas. It is eternal, formless, and attributeless. Well, all that sounds beautiful, but this is not just philosophy constructed by seers in confined hermitages. This is the lived truth which can, one can access by simply focusing on the self and asking, who am I? Am I the physical body? Am I the thoughts or emotions carried by it? Am I defined by the background I come from? Am I the achievements and attainments I have had? If any of these is yes for you, ask yourself, what happens if you take them away completely or partially? While taking the body completely away is a question that may be beyond the purview of rational thought, since reasoning defines that as the end of existence itself in the bodily form, the other questions highlight that while taking any of these away is going to change your form or state of being, it does not quite change your being. It does not change your very existence, nor your faculty of being conscious even as you live, nor your completeness within yourself. 
In Sigmund Freud's structural model of the psyche, the psychic apparatus is said to be comprised of distinct interacting agents described by the concepts of id, ego, and superego. In his book, An Outline of Psychoanalysis, published in 1940, Freud defines id as contains everything that is inherited, that is present at birth, is laid down in the constitution, above all, therefore, the instincts. Id precedes ego in the Freudian model. The mind of a child is said to be full of id, a mass of instinctive impulses and drives that need immediate satisfaction. The ego seeks to please this drive of id in realistic ways that bring benefit, not grief, in the long run. Uber-Itch, the German for super-ego, is basically the reflection of the internalization of cultural rules primarily taught by parents who apply the influence and guidance. There is a very interesting iceberg metaphor that is often used when trying to relate these concepts with the conscious and unconscious mind. Parts of the super-ego and ego, along with the entire id, is submerged in water, representing the unconscious mind, while the remaining parts of the superego and ego displayed above the water represent the conscious mind. Wisdom is an attribute, an acquired asset that is based on predicated truth and knowledge, either obtained by experience or learning. If you acquire it, can you be that? If your parents named you, can you be your name? Was there no you before you were named? If life and your journey therein equipped you with an education, occupation, thoughts and tendencies, attributes and characteristics, ideologies and alignments, can you be any of those? Was there no you before all these were obtained? If one meditates and tries to be aware of oneself and sees that once, like peeling the layers of onion away, one peels off all these superficial and additional layers of truth associated with you, the fundamental self is simply existence that is self-aware and complete in itself. For it, it, need not, it needs not anything else to fulfill its being. Now, if one were to take that proverbial leap of insight and awareness and look around at others, does one not see the same truth in each of them? Just like Indians tag themselves such as they live or belong to India, just like we physically identify our body as everything with a certain form, must we also not identify that which satisfies a definition of self consistently as part of the same self? What is the self then? It is simply self-aware and complete existence. You may ask whether a stone is aware of itself or whether a dolphin or an amoeba is complete. Yes, a stone can be said to be aware as much as awareness is defined by its tendency to react or respond to physical stimulus like a shove, which going by our definition of self means that the stone and the agent undertaking the shove are part of the same self. Dolphin or amoeba are complete within themselves even as they have evolved and aligned well with the specific conditions in their environment to be self-reliant and self-dependent. This tendency of increasing consciousness and completion is what ancient Indian texts regard as spiritual evolution. Given this definition and understanding of the self, does it make sense to have acute body consciousness or ego centered on physical individuality and attainments? We often hear people speaking of accepting a certain idea or thought since someone specific said so. Can we assign such absoluteness to anybody or being who inherently are limited and possibly even flawed? We are different reflections of the same oneself, and these attainments of ours are appreciable and good only in a limited relative sense. Even the greatest of seers, scientists, doctors, leaders, and traders, everyone from Alexander to Albert Einstein, everything from hieroglyphics to the steam locomotive that spurred the Industrial Revolution in Britain, will be lost in the pages of history ages down the line. All that will be left will be the operative and utilitarian development of humanity, nay, simply existence. 
all that will be left is a collective consciousness that encapsulates either in our very DNA or in the Vedantic spiritual memory or in Freud's super ego or in a simple physicalist hysteresis, if you will, all that we have progressed through. Some would ask, then what is the point of attaining anything at all? Or why are we working in the first place? The point is in instantiating the essence of correlating, of uniting in structure, tendency and essence, since no attainment, no task is performed in isolation by any element in the universe. Even within us, there is a self-correlation of sorts, where many different faculties work together to create a specific form and functionality of our body. Even if we were to look within, this relational reality comprising of elements that have no functionality or meaning by themselves becomes clear. We are all qualitatively distinct and more than just the sum of our parts. The parts, frankly, may not matter beyond a point. It is in the essence of those parts, in the actions they take, in the bonds and correlations that they form, that something beautiful and profound lies waiting to be found, the self-aware, complete existence. We are not this, we are not that, we just are. Thank you.